Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is a really interesting one. I have a fun and truly wide-ranging conversation with the writer, programmer, and technologist Paul Ford. Paul probably needs no introduction, but just in case, he is currently the co-founder of Postlight, a digital product studio based here in New York, and is also a prolific writer, having written for publications like Harper's, The Morning News, Medium, and New York Magazine. And he's probably most well-known, at least to designers, I imagine, for his really groundbreaking Bloomberg Business Week essay from 2015 called What is Code? It's a truly incredible piece of writing and one that I've assigned to my students and have found myself returning to a, a couple times now. In this episode, Paul and I talk about that piece and the process behind it and kind of going through the, the editing and revisions and production of that, as well as his early interest in writing in computers. We talk about the early days of the web and building his own blogging software. We talk about how the internet affects the form of, of content and the current issues that are kind of surrounding digital product design. This was such a fascinating conversation for me. I've been reading Paul's writing for years now and just really love his brain and how he thinks. And it was such an honor to visit him at Postlight and pick his brain about uh, all of these things that, that I'm interested in. So let's get right into it. This is me and Paul Ford. this over the last couple couple days knowing that I was going to talk to you and went back on Twitter and and the blog that I had going for a while to try to figure out when I had mentioned you the first time mm -hmm. and it was like 2010 2011 or so and I, I now I'm forgetting what piece it was but uh, the reason that I bring this up is because I kind of realized that for a long time I knew you only as a, a writer essentially sure. and you were this like tech person who I think is a programmer, but I'm not totally sure, but also does this writing thing. Sure. And so I thought that was kind of, would be a good place to start with kind of, which one of those came first for you? Was it kind of the technology programming thing or the, the writing thing? No, both came, um, were there my whole life and came at the same time always, which is, okay. was always a perplexing thing about the job or about yeah. what, who I am and what I do. So I'll give you an example. My father, when I was like six years old, my father was an English professor, but he was into computers and he sat me in front of a okay. Commodore PET and he said, um, you know, look at this. It's almost when you write these little programs, they're like little poems. Yeah. And so it's wow. like the, the whole thing has always been scrambled up for me my entire life. I have never been good about preserving and respecting the boundary between what's possible with technology and what's possible with sort of pure, more traditional aesthetics. Even worse, as I get older, I've gotten interested in the history of the book and production processes, and I increasingly just start to see absolutely everything as a reaction to technology-defined forms right. in our aesthetics, <laughs> uh, which means I don't. I literally don't get invited to parties anymore. Like right. it's, a, it's like don't. He'll just sit in a corner and just yell. So yeah, don't. I mean, I love that you went right into it just first question. Oh yeah, no, no, don't. I mean, that's the thing. So it, it's I've never respected or been particularly interested in the boundary. The culture, our, my culture, right. is really interested in like 
where does good writing sort of begin and end? And I spent a whole lot of time hearing about how blogs weren't really right. writing and right. on and on. And I just I grew up in a creative house that was a chaotic house. And I grew up around technology. I had a computer when I was young. I lived in the town where Commodore Computer was. Oh, wow. Westchester, Pennsylvania. So I was yeah. always surrounded by these machines, like in school and elsewhere. And uh, so, you know, if you'd asked me when I was 12, do you want to be a programmer or a writer? I would have said yes. That was that was literally my next question. I didn't mean I didn't want it to sound too reductive, but I was kind of, you know, when you were growing up, what was that future? Mm -hmm. Well, it was just all of that. I mean, that's the thing. I used to spend enormous amounts of time. The good fortune I had was that my parents were like, you know, you, you talk a lot about computers. I'm like, I really want one. And they said, um, they had an inspired move. They're like, all right, if you do the research and tell us the best one to buy, and uh, we'll let you get one. And I mean, I for like 18 straight months, <laughs> catalogs, yeah. you know, Computer Shopper Magazine, whatever the hell it took. And I finally, I was like, look, I think the one that's really the up and comer is this thing called the Amiga. And it was, a, it was a Commodore computer, and it was colorful. And I'd used a Mac from when I was 10. My dad used to drop me off at the college library so I could play with the Mac. And I was like, right. I think this is the next step. And they, I, I exhausted them. And, and they, how old were you at this time? 12. Okay. okay. And they, I exhausted them, and they were like, okay. And I mean, in, in retrospect, the thing cost as much as a car adjusted for inflation, yeah. Yeah. especially the cars we had. I mean, it was a ridiculous purchase. Uh, at a strange time, and it gave me a place to kind of organize my thoughts. And my father, again, had always been, he'd been doing word processing since, you know, 1981. I mean, he'd been really early. Right. And my mom had done, uh, used spreadsheets and, and been engaged. And so there was this sense of this not being a, a foreign presence in the home. It was like, oh, that makes sense. We'll all use that. And so you'd, you would just, I and the thing is, I found the space that software created fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I had the good luck of having in, almost in the family, my grandparents rented a place to a man named Tom. And Tom was a communications professor who freelanced doing video production. Okay. And Tom was just a friendly, loving, kind person. Uh, and, you know, when I was a little kid, he would make me popcorn. He was like, oh, come on up, Paul. And, you know, always, right. always yeah, just yeah. had, like, lots of folks around him. And he also had an Amiga that he used for video production. And so Mm. what I got very clearly very early on, and this is something I try to communicate out as much as I can, an understanding of form and technology as a way to get things done. And if you learn a program, you could learn how how part of the adult world works. Oh, interesting. And so books for all of, (laughs) for as much (laughs) as I love books, like textbooks are hard to read, right? And they're dry. I like I like novels. I like trashy stuff. I like really good stuff. But like, cell biology is hard. Um, video production yeah. is hard. Yeah. And, you know all that stuff. And so, when you get a piece of software, you can go into that space and you can intuit the profession and the craft from it. Now, what's tricky is, and this is always the thing from the other side. People go like, "Oh my God, uh, everyone's going to pretend they're a designer now that they have these amazing right. tools." Right. But I see it from the other point of view, which is I can understand I'm not a good designer, but I can understand some of the mental processes and the ways that designers think by interpreting and understanding software. This is something that I was kind of curious about because I was kind of going back over your archives and reading a bunch bunch of 
older pieces over the last week or so. And I, I had always kind of defined you as, a, as someone who wrote about technology or software specifically. And as I was reading through them again, I realized how much of it was actually kind of about design and sure. about kind of how... And other people actually see me as a personal essayist. Yeah. The thing that, that changed my career was I wrote that I wrote a big thing for Business Week called What is Code? Right, yeah. And that that was a kind of a pop hit. And so people were like, oh, this is a person who writes about technology. Yeah. Up until that point, if you'd said, Paul, which is more successful, the personal essay, the technology stuff, I would have actually said the personal essay. I'd oh, been, really? I'd been on NPR. I'd been in Harper's. I'd been all over the place as a serious personal essayist, and I actually was always advocating to talk in a same kind of literary tone about tech. And then Business Week had let me do a piece about the Twitter API, right? and uh, and then they let me do the, the big issue, and then that sort of changed things. But up until that point, I think people would be, you know, like the, the, the path I was on was more like write about your life for the Times Magazine. In my head, the personal essays came came kind of after that and that technology was the thing that was no, driving it. No, before oh, okay. that. So the process was like, I was kind of writing for a lot of magazines. Then right. I had this weird run where Medium, where I'm an advisor, suddenly just paid me and a group of other people to kind of write what we wanted. Right. I remember that. And I just sort of, I, there was something about the platform and where I was at at that moment. And I just did a lot of stuff that I, I just, in retrospect, I'm really glad I did. Like yeah. Personal essays, partly tech, partly not. Right some sloppy stuff, but some good pieces too. Um, and that sort of put me in a mind of, of, what I was really trying to do with Medium was like, can I talk to a big audience? Can I get, can I speak to a way, in a way that hundreds of thousands of people are reacting to this? I'd never tried that before. And so I was using it to experiment and looking at the stats and seeing like, wow, I wrote a piece that's like 5,000 words and 200,000 right. people came and checked it out. That's pretty good, I'm, I feel right. good about that. And then I landed in the what is code space. Okay. All right. So, all right. A couple things to kind of frame all of that to talk about what is code. Um, the piece, as you were talking about that, I remembered the piece that I first tweeted about of yours was about Facebook buying Instagram. Right. That was for New York Mag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that was 2011-ish, I think. Right. Um, and that so I actually, that was a reboot of my whole writing career. Okay. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll give you a, this is going to be dry for everybody, but I'll give you okay. like the, the potted okay. version. Uh, moved to New York in the late 90s, worked on the web. Um, never, ever thought anyone would let me ever write anything. Mm -hmm. Then uh, got, started a blog. Right. And then that got picked up different places. I started mm -hmm. to write for an online publication called The Morning News, which right. really was a great place to just learn a lot and try things. And I was able to do really good work for them. And um, and also really bad work, and they really let me <laughs> try. Yeah. Uh, I got a novel out of that, which didn't do well. Right. I got on NPR, uh, on All Things Considered. But again, personal essays, no okay. tech. Okay. Nobody wanted you to talk about tech. Then I got a job at Harper's Magazine where I went and became a web person right. again. And I built an archive, and I kind of stopped writing. When you're in that environment, you're like, oh, I'm tired yeah. of the sausage. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, like once a year I would write something. And then I, I left, and... Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Adam Pasek at New York Magazine, who's now at Quartz, was like, hey, I, I, I don't know whether he'd found me or like we'd met or something. But he was like, you want to write about this Instagram stuff? And because um, uh, Instagram had just bought them. And I was like, sure, I'll give it a go. It's been a while. Yeah. And uh, or we maybe we'd done one thing before. And that, that piece sort of like got some pickup and suddenly 
I was back in the game, and I was back in the game at an exact moment where things were happening, like right. Facebook was buying right. Instagram for a billion dollars, right. and there weren't a lot of people who could make that funny. Yeah. And so what you're seeing, and, and what's funny is like people started to notice me again then, but what you're seeing is just like kind of 15 years of being a crab apple. <laughs> right. And then there's this moment where they were like, oh, that guy. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there wasn't, um, there were not that many people in that space. Right, right. I mean, I, so I want to, I want to pull out one more thing from there that resonates with me a lot. And it's specifically blogging. And I think I mentioned to you before that I, it was through blogs that I essentially discovered graphic design and, you know, essentially sure. set me on the career that I've now been on. And so, so blogs as a form, as a medium is something that's very nostalgic to me in a weird way, but also something that's very important to of me. Of course, of course. Um, and I feel like blogging for you also was this way that you could kind of experiment with these different modes of writing, but also uh, the programming side and building your own content management systems. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of curious about your experience kind of in that moment where very clearly this kind of technology, the actual building side, but then also kind of building as a place to write, mm -hmm. how those influenced each other or uh, related to each other in any way. Sure, of course. So um, the when I when the web showed up, there were very few systems that made it easy to manage content. Right. Which today we would call content <laughs> right. management systems. Right. And uh, and there certainly were very few that were cheap or free. And I was new to the city um, and had a little bit of programming under my under my belt and a little I was never a great programmer. Still I'm not a great programmer or designer. <laughs> um, really many I'm I'm kind of middling at lots of things that are currently very valuable in our culture. So I, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I feel like half this interview so far has been you saying that you're not great at yeah, this thing no, we're talking no, about. Well, or that I learned very, very painfully. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm a, yeah, there's a lot of second class um, <laughs> quality uh, things that I can really, yeah. I can do. And, um, and I give up easily. So really, this is a disaster. Um <laughs> uh, no, I really wanted to com I wanted you know what it was is I love zines and I love the idea of like mm. communicating. Mm -hmm. It's it's a very different time now, but I don't, you know, and we we also talk about how hard the media industry has it, but one of the things that was really clear when I was 21 years old and was thinking about what it would be like to be a writer and what it would be like to do things, it was really really clear to me that I didn't have the right pedigree and the right temperament and the mm. right look and the right angle to get into those worlds. I didn't know where those rooms right. were. Right. And um, and so, and I was, I think what's weird is the conversation has really changed publicly about how do you get into that room. Right. I just figured I was never getting in the room. And there was a whole world of people who also were like, to hell with the room. Let's right. not even try. Yeah. Like, let's not get, boy, New Yorker's a great magazine. I enjoy reading it. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah. Instead, I'm going to go to Kenko's and I'm going to write my zine about, you know, weird footwear. Mm -hmm. And um, and the energy there was wonderful. 
just one because you're you're again you're 21 like you what you see is other people creating using the resources at hand to create their world not right. waiting right and that was the huge message don't wait just do it and no one's going to really pay attention right um because again we didn't have this vast platform so there was very little chance of failing in public you would essentially fail in like quasi public right 10 yeah, people yeah, might yeah. see it unless you did something really bad nobody would notice right. and so Having the technology at hand, I wanted to, I got a job essentially kind of cutting and pasting web pages, but I also was really interested in tech and I'd been playing around with it in yeah. college. And so I was like, all right, well, let's figure out how to put this stuff together. And I wrote some Perl scripts that would take one text file and turn it into 20 text files, and then you had a website. Yeah. And that was it. And there were probably 100 lines. And boy, was it, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but. Uh, and then I would FTP it over to a website. I'd move the files kind of by dragging and dropping. There was a program called Fetch. A little dog. Oh, yeah. yeah. A little dog. And a little dog would that. like run yeah. when you, you know. And <laughs> I forgot about <laughs> that. was the thing. It was, and it was sort of fun. It's fun. Yeah. Like it was, it was a wonderful sense of empowerment when you had your own space. No one knew about it. Your parents didn't know about it. Your ex-girlfriends didn't know about right. it. Like right. uh, your friends didn't know about it unless you told them. And you had your own space and you put – and that was a big thing about the early webs. It was kind of private by default Yeah. because nobody knew where to look for you. There wasn't any Google. There weren't any identifying tracks. If you didn't yeah. use your name, nobody knew. And so you would put stuff up and you would – suddenly you were in the web. You were part of it. And you could then change the styles. But there weren't really style sheets. So you had to learn how to do that. And like <laughs> – so – to get the effect and the the to, first of all, you wanted to hit a certain level of quality. Like one difference between the web and zines is that looking professional has always been an asset on the web, right? As opposed to right. like like it's That's on pink paper with black magic marker and it's raw and from yeah. the soul. Looking like having a nice grid and lining up the type has always been. There's been a design element to communication from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and even the advocates for personal expression, somebody like Jeffrey Zeldman is a great example, yeah. were very, they were, Jeffrey was a powerful advocate for communicating, like using words, but also balancing that with really clear type and right. design from the absolute earliest days as an early practitioner around tech and, and, and building websites. And so that was the ethos. That's what, that's what's in the air. Right. And, um, so I'm responding to that. I'm, I want to make it look good, even though I don't know what look good means. Sometimes that, sometimes it's, yeah. eventually CSS shows up and I'm like, oh, I can do line spacing. And someone's like, 149% is the right amount. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> right. And you'd yeah. buy, I'd buy books on type, you know, all the bring her stuff. Because that yeah. felt like be, like honoring a craft that didn't fully exist. And then people would kind of connect to each other, often through email. Right. And so what you saw was that a, a blank space appeared. There was this opportunity to suddenly really communicate. And there was a sense of discipline. There was also a sense of like, are you allowed to edit a blog post? And allowed in quotes, right? It seems right. crazy in retrospect. Right. But what there was a, there were instantly implied ethics about everything you did. And then people would be like, but wait, why? So I would write under pseudonyms. Was that ethical? I love right. doing it though because I could. T I, I would write fiction. I right. would feel comfortable lying in a piece and kind of saying like I'm lying to you halfway through the paragraph. These are all things that now, as a professional writer, for you know, if I was doing it for a magazine, it would be huge, huge alarm bells. But at that point, um, I was messing around and trying to communicate to people I was messing around. Some of this is fiction. Some of this isn't. Yeah. Pseudonyms were really clearly not real, and and you know things like that. And so. 
So um, what happened is, as you're building those tools, you start to de facto create forms. They're defined by the right. limits of your technical ability, and they're defined by the limits of the platform. So pictures are small because mm -hmm. modems aren't fast. Yeah. Um, optimized with fewer colors and dithered. They are type and prose is cheap. You can have as long a piece as you want. Things should not be too wide because it's hard to read on a wide screen. Um, more sections and headlines increase scrollability. And so, yeah. you know, as a it, rhetorically, the web had its own native form. And actually, I think if you asked me the true, which you didn't, but I'm, I'm going to pretend <laughs> Go for you it. The true native form of the internet to me is the FAQ mm. because it is short answers to questions. It's punctuated by individual blocks of type. Right. It's often structured hierarchically um, with tables of contents as they get deeper and deeper. And it's purely audience anticipating and, re and responsive. You, It's not like an right. argument. Yeah. It's not a debate. Yeah. It's like, hey, we've already had this discussion. Let me help you out. And let me do it in a way that is typographically actually quite profound. Right? Yeah. Like, here it is. Here's the stuff. Here's the links. Next question. Often they're ordered and lit. I mean, it's like, it's often in ASCII and not really formatted, but I, I think it really is like the most pure expression of how the internet shapes form and communication that you can find. Because frequently asked questions didn't exist. You know, the, the idea of Q&A existed everywhere, but that sort of native form addressing a community saying, hey, let's not hash that over. Check this out. Uh, didn't really exist before the internet at the at the level that it did after people yeah. started being communities. I mean, but so do you think that that th the the form that blogging allowed both both the visual form, you know, that the, that they would how the blogs would look, but also the way you could write in them influence how you later writing that is off of blogs, whether it's you know what is code or something that you were writing on Medium or for. New York Magazine or something like that. Sure. I mean, look, one of the things, it really, the, the platform changes a lot of things. So I had my own custom content management system that was one big file, which meant that it was really easy to point from one node or, or entry to another, mm -hmm. and it would know the title and it would know how to link to that intelligently. Right. Uh, other blogging systems didn't have that. So they tended not to be so self-referential because it actually was work. Right. It was relatively low labor for me to link to an other piece, right? And so I had a, a like a much tighter thicket of text than a typical blog would, and I was aiming to create something that was maybe a little more encyclopedic uh, right. about my life and my experiences. God knows exactly why anybody would want that, but at that moment, I thought that that was important work. Yeah. Whereas um, most blogging tools actually encouraged people to write about their experiences and reactions at a given moment as a kind of atomic unit. Mm -hmm. And then that would get compiled mm -hmm. into a reverse chronological list and then it would sort of keep going and you would experience that, right? right. And um, what I wanted was that thicket where time could be bent and things that if an idea made sense before another idea, you wouldn't be beholden to read it in out of order. You could read it in the order that I as a writer felt was best. Oh, interesting. Right. And so I, I was able to, and I was able to structure that. I could put something before something else, even if it came 
after in my brain. Yeah. And the reader would have that experience if they wanted to traverse the text. This was not, I mean, this a lot of this thinking was happening in the world of, of sort of hypertext and, you know, lots of what people were thinking about it. And so I built something that kind of only I could use. Yeah. And... Um, and that was actually a great lesson because people who build things, even if they don't allow the flexibility and fluidity uh, that everybody can use, that idea will take off far faster than the good idea right. or the thing that you think is important unless everyone can use it. And that was a huge like early product lesson. Like, well, if I figured this out in such a way to give them a box, maybe I right. could have yeah. built a good blogging platform that other people wanted to use. Do you, do you know Robin Sloan? Sure. Um, I mean, I've actually never met him, but we're in a lot okay. of like cohorts. Yeah, I, f I assumed that much. Um, you know, because he has this term media inventor, mm -hmm. uh, which he likes to describe himself. And, you know, the, the I'm going to ruin his definition, but the basic idea is that you don't just create the content, you create the thing that the content goes into and that that those things can influence each other and can make something new and different than going into these kind of preconceived templates. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about, I think. No, that's right. I mean, what I do in that conversation, so I have a company and we build a lot of, among other things, we do a lot of stuff now, but about a third of our business is media and content platforms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And most of those are fairly straightforward. People want articles, they want headlines, right. they want slideshows, and they want them done to specific requirements around their business. But every now and then someone will come in and be like, I want to do, I don't know, um, something about hats. And, you know, I want to do the ultimate hat website. And so then the, to me what becomes interesting is that the atomic unit of content is the, like, the hat entry. Right. Right. And so do you say we're going to create a vertical called caps, right? And right. it's going to be where we write about the caps. Or do you create a system whereby people can insert just about any kind of hat and tag it as a cap so that it flows into the caps, the cap vertical? Right. right? There's actually a big difference in, in how you structure that. But the key thing is that it's atomic. Like what is it's It's the cap. It's the event. It's the mm -hmm. article. Mm -hmm. It's the picture. These are really and, – and what you see is that – if you apply this broadly, the tweet is the atomic unit right. of Twitter, right? right? And boy, if you add that constraint and get it right and do the right product work on top of it, it explodes. Um, the wall post is really the atomic unit of Facebook and right. everything else, and, and actually the image for Instagram, right? Like those are the best parts of those products. Like, whoa, right. look at all this streaming stuff, all this great cool stuff, and everything else is like, whoa, slow down. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that core experience is, is really good. And, and so, Tumblr is one where like they had like five core content types, right. um, you know, but but basically what I've seen is anything that has true scale has a simple way to create these sort of widely understood forms and, mm -hmm. and within these widely understood forms. What blows my mind is how a lot of it is sort of inherits from a legacy understanding of forms. So right. Blog posts are basically articles, op-ed. Mm -hmm. um, or sort of journaly personal narrative. Um, YouTube is straight up video. Uh, it is just, it's a rectangle of a yeah. certain size that inherited TV's rectangle. Um, you know, Twitter being was novel, but it inherited the SMS. Right. And on. so they're very atomic, straightforward units of content that completely run our lives now. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to stretch this metaphor 
too too far away from kind of what you're talking about. But this something that comes up on in these conversations that I have all the time with you know, and, and this podcast is kind of at the high level about design criticism or how we talk about design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that uh, you know, kind of subconsciously what we think of as good design or bad design is rooted in these kind of atomic pieces that you're talking about that are from a legacy technology. I mean, how could it not be? We can't tell what's good. If you showed me what's good 20 years from now, I'd be horrified right. by it. Right. Right. Like, I, how am I going? Because I don't know what the constraints are. And it's going to be way outside of the constraints, constraint yeah. systems that I understand. Yeah. You know, and it could be that screens are spherical and, and you put them on your thumb <laughs> right. like finger puppets. Right. right. And I'm going to. But if you show me that interface now, I'll be like, that's a nightmare. There yeah. will be 30 or 40,000 little steps and constraints. We'll get adapt. Look, the thing I there's a quote that I trot out constantly, um, which is. Uh, Oh, God. William Morris, socialist artist from yeah. the, in Britain, um, he was writing about uh, typewriting. He was complaining about how typewriters compared to quill pens oh, just made it really easy to write. And he, he said this, which is, you can't have art without resistance in the materials, mm. which is a, just a yeah. defining quote to me, right? Like you can't, because you can't really understand what the aesthetic point is unless you understand what the boundaries are. Right. Right. And so that's, I mean, which when you think about it, like kind of all, all art, especially modern art is utterly dependent on that. Like, yeah. I don't, you know, Mondrian on a wall means nothing. It's wallpaper <laughs> in a, you know, on a, yeah. on a yeah. canvas, it starts to make sense. And, um, you know, that, that might be a little reductive, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but that, that's one of those guidestone quotes. Like I come back to that and I feel that you can measure and understand form in terms of resistance, like how much can fit in here, who, and also the, in terms of who controls access to right. that form and definitions of quality. Like if you think about the New York Times homepage, there's a rectangle, point to any rectangle. There's a team of 20 or 30 people yeah. who are in charge of that rectangle. And if you right now went over and was like, hey, I got something for you, they would go, no, 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 no. (laughs) Get the hell out of here, right? Right. It's our rectangle, that's how we preserve quality. Um, And it's literally about that space. I mean, newspapers are column inches and, and, you know. So so there's a physical, I always think of like, think of it in terms of real estate Mm -hmm. and like who, who, you know, and, and actually publications in general are, uh, you know, they own this space in people's attention and then they're landlords. They'll rent it out to advertisers. Right. And they're like, hey, you want, yeah. this, you want this rectangle, yeah. but not the whole rectangle. You have to kind of take like this one little guy over here as a place where you're going to like it. It's on right. the third floor. You get to look out the window. And um, and the advertisers are like, yeah, I'll take it, but I'd actually prefer to own the whole freaking building. And <laughs> you know, that's that's how we're where we're at. But no, I think if you look and, and measure that resistance, you start to understand um, the human factors and the and the, the the ways that form work to define what flows through them. Yeah, I wanna I wanna completely change gears Go, for a bit. Change, talk about what is gears. code because sure you know, that. I mean, first of all, I loved that piece. I've read it three four five times probably probably more times than i have um i have assigned it to students um i have the it's the only physical copy of bloomberg business week (laughs) that i have (laughs) um and and so i have a couple questions that kind of span from 
the very kind of tactical questions sure. to a little bit more theoretical around it. Go for it. And, and so I kind of want to start kind of very simply, and I hope this is not a, a boring question for you, but I'm, I'm very curious kind of how you even thought about framing and structuring that when you, when you were kind of like, I have to write an essay called What is Code, or that's about code. How do you even start something like that? Well, basically a, an editor, in this case, a guy named Josh Tiringo, okay. who's the editor of Business Week, was like, we're going to do a special issue on, on code and programming because it's a big deal. And I was yeah. like, well, that's awesome. You should totally do that Business Week. And they're <laughs> like, yeah, you know what you should do is write the, write me like a what is code piece. And I was like, should be about 6,000 words. And they're like, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I, it's long, but let's see what happens. And so I wrote that and I was like, all right, I know it's supposed to be six, but I got to like eight or nine. And I sent it in and it was very late. And they were like, okay, this is interesting. Actually, we want you to go a little bit further. Like just Because <laughs> it's going to be kind of a big piece, but it'll be cool. And I got it to like 15,000 words. Okay. And I was like, because okay. the, the, the subject is vast. Right. And the more space they gave me, it turns out that by being in this discipline on and off for so many years, yeah. I had it in my head. Yeah. And I also had been doing all that writing. I'd been doing a bunch of writing for Medium. And mm -hmm. I, I just had a sense of lively, fun, wanting to explain. Also, in the back of all this, I'm supposed to be writing a book on this subject, which is still late. So, <laughs> so there's all this like, yeah. like still late today. So there's all this crazy like stuff in my head. Right. Which I should be turning into the book, but then Tiringel created the ultimate distraction. <laughs> and um, so I got to about 15,000 words, and then they said, uh, I remember the email really clearly. My wife was home that day, and I was working from home, and uh, it said, hey, Paul, just want to let you know, we really like this, and it's going to be the whole shebang. We're going to give you the whole <laughs> issue. And my wife watched it. She's like, I went to the sofa, and there was a blanket, and I put it over my head, and I still remember the sound. I went, oh. <laughs> and she said, what's wrong? And I said, I am about to be judged by an unbelievable number of human beings. And at the same time, I was very conscious that an opportunity afforded to basically no human beings had just been handed to me. Yeah. Single issue magazines are very, very rare. They, right. After we did this, they became much less rare. Everybody pulled <laughs> – and, and it got a national magazine yeah. award, so everybody like pulled out their big single issue idea. Yeah. But um, but before that, it had been almost kind of decades since anyone had done it uh, – at a na with a national magazine. And there was a real irony there, right? Like, I'm not a famous person. I'm a, 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 a my core, and I, I say this self-deprecatingly, but also true, kind of a chubby nerd blogger. Like, I mean, I'm for real, for real. Like, I've had I've good relationships with people, and I've built a decent enough career. But, I mean, the, the core of me is like a, a fat guy in a sweater talking about <laughs> JavaScript. I mean, there's no alternate reality. Yeah. And, um, and so, like, you know, when you think about other people who've done this, and this is a very, there's a knowing irony here that we all got. Like, John Hersey wrote a single issue uh, New Yorker about Hiroshima, right? <laughs> like, like right. one of the most foundational issues of the last century. And then Paul Ford, question mark, wrote a single issue Business Week about code, right. which is nerdy. Like, I mean, it, it was a very, like, let's see what happens. This will yeah. be ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, this will be ridiculous. 
And then tactically what they did is they just like, you have to come into the Bloomberg building and just kind of live here. And I did. Just, oh, okay. And I just like went in and finished the piece. I kept writing and writing and writing. So I'm going to ask you like three questions that are probably going to be really boring, but I think are helpful to kind of frame all of this. Yeah. So how how long was that? Did that take? How How many words did it end up going up to? And then um, how many you know, revisions or what was that kind of editing process like to then get it in the magazine? This is actually fascinating. So okay. um, I probably worked on it on and off for a couple months. Okay. And it was, you know, the piece I turned in was a little bit of a collage of pieces from the, uh, from the book and new stuff and so okay. on. And then the process of expanding was like two to three weeks, like go, 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 go. Okay. And I'm a good reactive, I'm a pretty good reactive freelance writer after many years. So I was like, okay, here we go. The And then it was like, okay, we need a lot out of you really quickly. And mm-hmm. so that was kind of lockdown. Like you just, there is a point, there's a mode you can go into when you feel pressure where you're just pounding the keyboard, knowing that what you're going to get isn't good, but that you're going to shape it into something good. That's where I got. And I probably got to like 45,000 words or so. Okay. Okay. And then... And then I I sent that in, and then it was like, you need to live here now because you're going to need to rewrite a lot of this. We're going to add a lot. Um, and I went in, and actually what had happened was my editor had uh, really hurt his ankle. So he was home on Percocet, and I was sitting in his seat. Okay. Now, what's fascinating is the whole organization was set up with kind of like A and B teams to manage different parts of the magazine and have everything parallelized. But I was the bottleneck for the entire right. publication. <laughs> So um, I made a strategic decision to just be unbelievably, uh, as, as much as I could, polite and friendly and helpful and to not have a lot of pushback except mm-hmm. around accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I hired a two people to serve as independent fact checkers, okay. even though they were fact checking inside because I, I had one person who knows the, one person who knew, knew me really well and one person who knew the history of computing really well. And I was like, see if you can find something. And then actually the whole editorial apparatus of Business Week, of course, was also going after this. Right. And so it was a extremely intense, high-velocity environment, I think particularly for me. Yeah. And there was a sense as we did it that it was getting good, but also that that risk was mounting. Um, you know, this was a... It, the bet that yeah. was funny became a, a real bet at a certain point, and the website needed to happen. Right. Um, and I would go in and try to help with the website, but it soon became clear that my only focus could be on the text. Yeah. And um, But I, I was able to go to stand-ups and be like, that's great, but that's kind of all I did. I was just like, looks amazing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's a funny thing because I'm the absolute center of the show. I'm mm-hmm. not used to that role. I don't have the right kind of ego for it. I have plenty of ego, but not like that's a lot. And um, I'm a good production person with lots of thoughts about design and visuals. And I'm a magazine guy and a web guy and so on. And I really had to shut a lot of that down and just be like, what is the way to increase my throughput? Right. And also to advocate for a certain kind of accuracy because Technology and writing about technology is basically unholy in an editorial environment. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would have yeah. to say things like, you cannot break that line. No matter what it takes, don't do it. Um, you know, or if we do, we have to like, you know, put a footnote or something because it won't work. It won't make sense. Right. And um, meanwhile, they were – and then 
lots of photography and art started to happen simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So I was picking up, you know, a certain percentage of this. And it was an excellent and lovely and affirming team. I'm like, I mean, I was paranoid to walk in because I'm like, I'm writing about something. It's a very awkward position to be in because also they killed like 15 pieces, including some by people in the room. And I just show up in my blazer and I'm like, hi, I'm here to write the magazine. And also don't forget, like, this is like three weeks out. There's two more magazines that have to go out. Oh, right. right. Yeah, you know, like I am a, I, I, it, it was so important for me not to be, um, sand in the works but mm -hmm. i also was like there was right. and so everyone kind of had to having everyone work around you is hard and just like i don't yeah. i'm not comfortable with that but they did and they supported like hell there was one amazing point where it was like we should have a list of all the all, lots of programming languages so i went and got the wikipedia page and we like just i basically put like we put like 600 pages on a 600 languages on a two-page spread mm -hmm. and then they were like you know and i'm working along working along and they're like we gotta explain what some of these are so i wrote like 140 <laughs> annotations right and then what i realized they had a thing called um it's red balling where if you uh, every proper noun has to be fact-checked that's their specific like oh, editorial oh, strategy. Yeah. <laughs> but they're all proper nouns so the the fact-checking and editorial oh. team had to look up and affirm all 600 programming languages were real and it was like I still wish I had it. I wanted to get it. It is. I'd never seen a page marked up like that. Like everybody jokes yeah. about it. The editor guy was like a Christmas tree. It was violently, disturbingly red from all the way across the room. Like just this, like this fire hose of checking. And um, and so there was a lot of stuff like that kind of going on simultaneously. And a lot of like, can you please do this? Can you please right, write this right. sidebar? Write this quote? Whatever. Um, and then I think what happened at a certain point is they're like, wow, I guess we're going to pull this off and it will be this voice. This will be the person. Uh, we added some framing to it. Like, you know, there was a there was a kind of through line about yeah. uh, the man in the taupe blazer. Right. And that was there from the beginning, but like enhancing that, getting it to yeah. a conclusion. And then it came together. And, and again, like this is an extraordinary staff, like really, really a creative, lovely team. I've worked with lots of magazine groups and, and I mean, they, of course I would say this, but I was really lucky. This was a yeah. really yeah. good group of people making magazines at a time when making magazines is not as valued an art as it used to be. Right. And it was like, um, and they just owned it and they made it great and they edited the hell out of it. And it went out and it was true to tech. Like that's the feedback that I, the most, the people I was most yeah. terrified about were the programmers because right. when they, right. the one error, you know, and it's just right. like, forget it, it's yeah. over. And um, and I got all the nagging about it, but it would be like, this barely even touches on microprocessors. I remember I saw that piece of feedback and I was like, I won. Like I was, I was like, I, I did it because um, all of the criticism was about gaps rather than right. yeah. like something else. It's a, and if you're not a programmer, you may not know how nudgy that are. Like designers are, are, are crabby in their own way. Yeah. Um, they're just, but but also like designers kind of hate everything, especially at first, and then they right. kind of unless it was done by a genius who they all want to work for, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so like, right. and then that person kind of hacks out the same thing they've yeah. done for the last twenty years, and everybody's like, oh, this is this is great, but like the new work that main, you know, yeah. But, but engineers kind of hate everything, and they don't like their culture being described, right? Okay, so this this is I think kind of why I wanted to talk about that that piece especially and I think can kind of lead us into the you know start to wrap wrap up this conversation a little bit because something that I talk about a lot with people is 
um, kind of the relationship between being a practicing designer and then being a writer or a critic or, or someone who kind of writes about the profession and the value that kind of being in the field or, or out of the field can have, but then also writing from inside the profession for people outside of the profession. Mm -hmm. And I think only someone who was inside programming could write what is code. Yeah, there is, I think what software criticism is possible without being a programmer. It's yeah. harder. Yeah. But it's possible. You can say, you know, lots of product managers um, are not programmers. Right. right. They're able to design and think through how a product should work or work with designers yeah. and engineers, but they synthesize. And a critic could do that. They could be like, I understand the basics on the design side and on the engineering side. When this product came together or this website or this service, does it exist to, you know, does it help the user? What is right, it reacting right. to? And so a classic school of criticism hasn't really emerged around software, but it could. Um, but that attempt to get people over the threshold into a basic understanding of the discipline so they can hold their own yeah. requires a practitioner. Right. And so how did you think about, about that as, you know, you mentioned writing this and wanting it wanting the programmers to not be mad at you. But how did you how did you think about writing it in a way that they wouldn't be mad and would be entertained, not just not be mad, but be able to read it and enjoy it, but then also a Bloomberg Business Week reader would be able to read it and learn something. Well, you know be, that, to, that balance? Yes, to be clear with the engineers, I was <laughs> aiming for factuality. And, right, and right, if, right. If, is that a word, factualness? <laughs> it is Some, now. Somebody needs to check it. Um, <laughs> I was aiming for accuracy. Right, right. But if they didn't like it, or if they didn't react to it, or think it was the greatest thing, but they thought it was accurate, then I would have done my job with regard to my connection to that community. Right, okay? right, okay. The actual job and the responsibility that was given to me was, can you explain this to a large group of normal human beings and who are yeah. who are who do not have this domain expertise? And that meant, what I what I refer to a lot is just jazz hands. Like you write in mo and this is we're back to the module. So actually, first of all, I initially composed and I advise anyone who is blocked to do this, especially if they have a large task to complete. I composed it as an FAQ. What are the questions mm. that people will have about this discipline? And then break them into sub questions oh, and sub questions. It's a wonderful outline method because what you realize is like if you really have a clear persona for the reader in your mind and you're like, will this question answer it? Well, then I better break it into more questions. And you, if you do the actual FAQ and if you look at the structure of the thing, it actually secretly is an FAQ. Each, each piece oh, answers yeah. a question about like, well, what is object-oriented programming? Well, what's an object? And and you're breaking it apart like that. So I believe deeply and always have that writing is ultimately, there are diff many different kinds of writing. The writing at which I enjoy the most and is probably not, I do love a good literary essay when I can pull one off. <laughs> but uh, what I enjoy the most and what I think I've become associated with, especially through that piece, is uh, the literary explanatory, right? Mm, like this tone mm -hmm. of like, we're really smart, we care about language, we love to see how things are communicated, 
And what that buys you when you're explaining a relatively dry and abstract subject is you're in this tonal zone, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, here's this guy. Oh, that's funny. I wouldn't expect that to read that in, the, in a piece about technology. Right. Oh, you just did a digression about cats or, or, or something. Oh, we're back here now. And so yeah. um, it, it's you've got this straight through line in the FAQ format. And you've got a, an actual through line in the form of like there's a meta narrative about the man in the tote blazer who right. yeah. um, needs to buy – uh, or, or has someone in his organization who is a programmer and a head of a CTO, mm-hmm. a head of engineering, and and um, and so uh, you've got all these different rhetorical narrative things interlocking, so that and, and the point of all of them, except for the straight FAQ answers, is to keep the the reader engaged and get them from point A to point B and C. Right. And you have to change shift. You have to change register. Where magazines are wonderful as opposed to the web is when you really break form, they have a mechanism for doing it and turning the page. Right. So it's yeah, like, yeah. here's two pages which are kind of like a bunch of illustrations and quotes and, and it's done as like a little cartoon. Turn the page. Turn the page. And then it'll be yeah. back to narrative. Yeah. Turn the page. Full bleed, full bleed image. That kind of variety is so good for the brain if you are hammering people with very, very abstract stuff. Yeah, I mean, and that's the FAQ. I think is is actually a really interesting metaphor because I was also thinking about you know occasionally I'll hear you pop up on on the media or something, mm-hmm. kind of talking about these things for people outside, and it's always broken down very clearly. That's FAQ. Basically, is exactly what that Look, is. Look, the root of that is empathy, right? Like, yeah. I want to get people over. If I'm if I can ever get this book done, I want to get people <laughs> in the room. Like, I want yeah. I'm very worried about the fact that technology accidentally – I have a good friend who succeeded very, very well as a technologist. And he is kind of living on – riding his bike, teaching mm-hmm. people programming. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, and he, But he didn't grow up rich. And he said – I was like, hey um, – I don't know. We were just talking about it. He was just like, yeah, you know, look, here's the thing. I had the good fortune to live through the greatest capital expansion in the history of mankind with the exact right skills at the exact right, right moment. Yeah in order to capitalize fully on that. And uh, that was pretty lucky on my part. And it, it's just like, that's it, That's the right attitude. And then there's enormous amounts of power being centralized in these big systems. And increasingly, yeah. it's hard to get in the room. Yeah. And so I feel a kind of, I have a professional life now. I have a company and I'm growing that company. We work for big clients. If there was one thing I could do with the remainder of my time, I think it's, I wanna find ways to get more people into the room. Yeah. I love that. I have two more questions to kind of wrap it up. These are two questions that I kind of ask everybody to end. And we've kind of been hitting on on this first one a little bit. Um, But I'm very interested in, you know, what what do you see as the issues, the topics, subjects that designer that are kind of facing designers today? And that can be kind of traditional designers, but also designers working in the product space and things like that, that we should be talking about right now. What are the the areas you know that need a kind of critical gaze boy that's a good question okay um (laughs) that's a good question is how i say i don't (laughs) know um all right first of all i don't feel that there is there used to be kind of always like one dominant form of yeah. design yeah right? and it'd be like uh, everybody's gone down this path with the dutch and it's just like <laughs> it's enough with the orange yeah. and yeah you know blah 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 and type and this and that and I, I don't think that's the world we live in i think we have a lot of choices mm-hmm. um 
I think that in terms of product design, one of the things I'm thinking really hard about, I'll speak about that. I'm, I'm not really, I'm not qualified to speak about anything, but <laughs> I have a company that does product right. design. Yeah, yeah. So I'll have an opinion there for professional reasons. Um, <laughs> the ethos of the industry has been that we should create really great engaging experiences that people want mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. Uh, so that people want to pick up phones and use their devices and make use of them and explore and play. And uh, that gets, sometimes it gets bad and, you know, it's candy crush and I'm addicted to it. And you find out that there are little addictive mechanisms that get built into these things or you're dragging your index finger to reload Twitter over and over again. Um, So, okay, we know there's a problem there. But what I think is tricky is that the fundamental ethos of the business is drives people to create those experiences. Spend more time with it. We want to create enriching, wonderful spaces where people spend lots and lots of time. And increasingly, I'm saying to myself, and partly this is because of the work that comes our way and the opportunities in front of us, rather than trying to make someone stay as long as possible, what about trying to get them back to their life really quickly? And so Mm. when you think about how you spend human time, Do you spend it, do you want to give people enriching experiences on a phone? Or maybe it's better ethically to go work for a bank and get them out of their bank account more quickly with a better user experience so that they can go about their day, right? Right. If you save them five minutes off of banking, you've actually probably added an enormous amount of human utility back to the world and made people happier, better bank customers. Then if you create a new social network that, you know, 5 million people, which is a trivial garbage number of people these days, are excited and motivated to use. And so I think that that's, if if there was an ethical framing and 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 a way to reconsider design, I would say that we've created an ethos around engagement as opposed to an ethos around giving people back time and control. That's a great way to think about that actually i mean it's kind of you, this is kind of what you touched on in the the 10 times frames piece a little bit i think well yeah. th- i did but actually at that point it was mostly about engagement i just revised that for our christmas card oh, okay <laughs> at which point i was right like i was like oh I'll just so for people who don't know I, I i wrote this thing called 10 time frames which was about the different ways we see uh, products and like being yeah. careful about spending other people's time but really what i was advocating for there is like make really good experiences yeah and after about five years i mean i'm going i i, t- I went back to that i'm like oh let's revise that and button it up and, I, and only about 10 percent remains because oh, i think what's changed is i don't sure let's make good beautiful experiences most of the time but there should also be an ethos of like, actually, God, just get them out of there and let them live their lives. Yeah, let people go talk to their kids. You know, yeah. they don't, they don't have to reload. I don't have to reload Twitter more than like I reload Twitter five hundred times for every one time that I need to reload Twitter. Yes. Right? Yeah. So. Yeah. My last question is, um, who who are the the writers, the authors? What are the books that have really kind of influenced? You can answer this in two ways. Influence the way you think about these things that we've been talking about. But then also, I'm kind of curious, kind of stylistically, who are the writers that you kind of admire and and are kind of trying to write like or doing the writing that you're really drawn to today? I like, um, it depends on kind of the mode I'm in. I like weird experimental essays. You know, I go, I did the Harper's Archive. Like, go spend all, (laughs) go spend five years in there. Um, You know, I love writers like Donald Barthelme or or just, 
where there's rapid sudden turns um in technology i felt that ellen ullman always oh, did yeah. amazing work yeah. uh writing about tech and humanism while also being an incredibly credible technologist like mm -hmm. just really deep down um very connected to the work uh, but also exploring a lot of the humanistic stuff and um there have been a few others um tracy kidder did a great job in soul of the new machine he's, oh yeah he's one of the he also did um just as a general note he wrote a really good book with his editor i think from the atlantic and i can't remember the title of it but it's easy to find okay. and it's about working with an editor and writing oh and interesting it's a really it's just genuine it's just sort of yes that is the process and how it actually works and he's one of the best process journalists alive like he just really knew how to put things together so that book was very influential um in terms of Design and product relative, I, I feel you learn those by osmosis and then you yeah. go back and kind of fill in gaps. Like, yeah. you know, as a as someone who's aware of design, I've never even tried to get my head around color, <laughs> right? Because no, I mean, it's yeah. such yeah. a discipline. Yeah. You go, it's like a, it's like a go get a graduate yeah. degree. And, and just, so. I don't think anyone's really gotten their head around color to be honest. It's, I have a friend who's like 20, 25 years into his career and he's like, I finally figured out how to work with a large palette. <laughs> you know, and instead of like three yeah. colors, right? Yeah. It's, um, so, uh, you know, I'm mindful of, I'm mindful of movements. I'm mindful of like, I like manifestos. Mm. Um, but I'm trying to think, I, I, I'll leave it there. There's just, okay. you know, I feel if I was to, I coined a word once. That's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> Someone coined a word <laughs> once uh, for an essay in which I describe myself as an ephemeralist. Mm. And um, I like that. God knows my my shelves are filled with books. We have a nice library here at the office where we're recording and on and on. But um, if you were to give me four hours and say go figure something out, I would much rather trawl through old scans of issues and yeah. or just look through bookshelves and um, let my brain put it together. Uh, right. re recently, I bought like. There's the one volume Columbia Encyclopedia that has a hundred thousand entries and it it weighs like thirty pounds. Okay. And I, I can't tell you how great it is to have all the world's knowledge in one book. Like it yeah. it forces you to think about like the maybe the infinitude of the internet is more of an illusion than we think it is and like yeah. you know, it that it's human knowledge is is really kind of messy and all over the place and here's another attempt to compress it. Right. Um, you know, there's, I'll, I'll leave you with this, which is that I have, uh, here in the office, I have a facsimile copy of the first Encyclopedia Britannica. In the oh, 70s, wow. they ran them off and gave them away when you bought your Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. So there are three volumes. And volume one, I think, is A to C. Volume two is like D to um, M, maybe. And volume three, or no, volume two is like D to g and then volume three <laughs> is like h to z right, right yeah. and and volume one is the thickest like they got they're like let's get all human knowledge into a yeah. book right yeah and it's and they they got up to c and they're like oh my god we're screwed we won't be done until like 1850 because yeah. this is and so it just keeps getting compressed and compressed in order to meet the deadline yeah and you can see it in the three volumes it's terrible um, and A to C is very robust. I think it's got all sorts of stuff. And the entries are hilarious because they're, they're literally, literally trying to figure out how to write about the world in an encyclopedic yeah. way. Yeah. So um, 
I actually love artifacts like that where you see the production and you see uh, the first of anything is always really interesting. Um, and, yeah. You know, I guess the last bit is like early computer manuals, the guides mm. to the Unix systems admin manuals and, and how to program in C were written for an audience that had no idea what this all was. Right. And they're wonderful. Oh, that's interesting. They're yeah. Extremely clear. And they just assume that like, oh, you're going to be writing some code to control an industrial refrigeration system. You're a relatively bright person, but a fun, fundamentally clerical. Let's get you into this world and help you understand the basics. Yeah. And it's going to probably take you a year or two to get good, and that's fine. Yeah. As opposed to this assumption, like, you don't know? Oh, right, my right. God. F- go learn. You're an idiot. Like, it's none of that. It's just a nice, professional, respectful tone, and it's very clear. And I admire that in- immensely. I just want to say that, you know, I've interviewed, you know, 50-some, 60 people, and no one has ever said the encyclopedia when I asked that last question of kind of the books that are influential to them. So I love that's the best <laughs> you, you can't top that answer i do i love a good encyclopedia thank you so much i could talk to you forever this was so interesting i know this is fun i'm sad i have to get back to work yeah no I, you should go do that this was great <laughs> thank you so much for, for talking it's my privilege thank you this episode was recorded on december 8th 2017 in new york city our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts and soundcloud and at scratching the surface.fm Thanks for listening.